If you have a Bible, go ahead and take that thing and turn to 1 Timothy chapter three. Uh, we have a lot of work to do today, y'all. So we're gonna get into this. Uh, we have a chapter and a half of 1 Timothy we're gonna cover. You're like, Kyle, we're gonna be here three hours. I promise we're not, okay? But we got a lot of ground to cover, so it's gonna be good. Um, but I think it's gonna fit together well. It's gonna be helpful for us. Um, but if you are new with us, if you need, need a refresher, we are in a series right now uh, looking at the letter of 1 Timothy. This is a letter that the apostle Paul wrote to his apprentice, Timothy, who's leading the church in Ephesus during a difficult time. Uh, in it, we've said multiple times that Paul lays out what we call the, the blueprints of the church in many ways, talking about how the way the church should believe, which then leads to the way that they should behave in the church and in the world in light of the gospel. Uh, last week, Jared finished out chapter two, uh, tackling the text I didn't wanna deal with, so I gave it to him instead. <laughs> um, just kidding, kind of. But, um, but he did a fantastic job with that. Um, Jared, man, he just, he just nailed it. Um, so if you missed that last week, you really wanna go back and listen uh, to that. Um, but this week, uh, we're gonna move into chapter three, and really, we're gonna cover all things church leadership today that Paul talks about in First Timothy. So we're gonna cover all of chapter three and the second half of chapter five today. I promise I have a plan for this. But today, we're specifically gonna talk about uh, elders and deacons, or pastors and deacons. I'll get more into that in, in a minute. But as we begin this conversation, I know it's super easy for you to hear this kind of thing and come to this kind of passage and think, you know what, like, what does this have to do with my life? Like, I, I'm, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a deacon, you know, I, I have no desire to maybe be one of those people. And so you're like, this passage has little to do with me if you're just kind of in that boat today. Well, first off, I'd say, be careful what you wish for. I was in my mid to late 20s before God called me to ministry. So you never know where you're at, especially college students. Don't think this doesn't apply to you right now. Um, so there's that, but also we can't deny that no matter what role we may or may not play in the church, even in the future, that the leaders of the church have a great ability to both help people in their faith, but also hurt people in their faith, right? You know, who, who knows how many people have had their faith in Jesus severely hurt by bad church leadership? How many non-Christians have looked at bad church leadership, those kind of leaders, and said, well, if that's Christianity, I want nothing to do with that, right? We see that even in some of the, the fallout of some celebrity pastors, happening in recent uh, months and years. And, and the apostle Paul knows this, and so that's why he writes to Timothy, who is leading the church in Ephesus, like we mentioned, and he gives them instruction on the kind of people to appoint as leaders in the church. And, and as we've talked about in this series before, remember the church in Ephesus, they're in a really bad place during this time. You know, they're embracing lots of false teaching. They're incredibly disordered in their worship gatherings, like, Paul, like uh, Jared talked about last week. And they're neglecting their mission as a church, which we talked about in the beginning of chapter two. And so as Timothy has to correct and rebuke these false teachers, Paul knows there's gonna be a leadership vacuum in the church as many of these guys get rebuked and leave or are forced out. And so there's gonna be a need for new leaders. And so Timothy wants to give guidance on the kind of people to put in, uh, in these positions. So today we're gonna have an important conversation about leadership in the church. Uh, John Maxwell, a pastor and author, he has famously given my favorite definition of leadership, that leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less. I think John Matthews was the one that first shared that with me, but leadership is influence. It's nothing more, nothing less. And when it comes to leadership in the church, leaders in the church have an incredible amount of influence over the church for better or worse. You could say it simply that so goes the leadership, so goes the church. And Paul knows that, so we need to have this important conversation today. So we're gonna look at our passage in three sections. First, we'll talk about elders. 
Second, we'll talk about deacons. And third, we'll look at the end of chapter three where Paul kind of ties this whole thing together to talk about how we all as a church fit into this leadership conversation. You guys ready? Get your seatbelt on. You're gonna need it. Okay, let's, let's go. First Timothy chapter three, let's just start with verse one, okay? Verse one, talking about elders as servant leaders. Verse one says this, this saying or this saying is trustworthy. Apparently this was a common saying in the church in the time. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So let's stop for a second. First off, we have, to, we have to answer the question, what is the office of overseer? Is it the same as pastor? Is it the same as elder? Like, what is this? Well, if you begin to look at the way that those titles are used in the New Testament, you're gonna find that, honestly, they all mean the same thing. I'll give you some examples. In Acts 20, chapter, uh, chapter 20, verse 17, Paul calls for the elders of the church of Ephesus to come meet with him. That's the, in the Greek, the presbyteros, the presbyteros, where like the Presbyterians kind of get their name. So he calls for the elders of the church, but then in verse 28 of that same chapter, he calls the same men, he calls the elders, the overseers of the church. That word would be episkopos. But then in that very same verse, in verse 28, he calls these elders slash overseers to shepherd the church which is where we get the word pastor. Like the word pastor is not really a title in the New Testament, but it's a description of the shepherding role that a leader has in the church. And you're gonna find these same examples of these titles being interchangeable in First Timothy, sorry, First Peter 5. You can go look there. Also Titus 1. We see that these, these titles are all interchangeable to really mean the same thing. They all are describing the same title. And so today I'm gonna kind of do that. I'm gonna kind of use them interchangeably. But just know that the the title elder, overseer, and pastor all refer to the same role in the church according to the New Testament, okay? So right away then, if we go to verse one, Paul makes it clear that this position of being a elder, a pastor, an overseer is what he calls a, a noble task, a noble task. That word noble is the Greek word kalos, which can mean good or beautiful. So Paul's saying that leadership done well in the church is a beautiful thing, that's a noble task, to feel called into ministry leadership. Now, Paul's not saying it's a good thing to look at the guy on the stage and say, yeah, I wanna be the guy that's in charge. I wanna be the guy up front who gets to speak to people and, and call the shots. That's, that's, that's the opposite of what he's saying here. Really, in a second, he's gonna describe the kind of characteristics of a, of a good leader, and that's the opposite of what they are supposed to be. And believe me, if that's your view of being a pastor, you don't want it, all right? That's not an accurate view of what all is involved. But Paul is saying this, that if you feel a call from God into ministry leadership, which I would also add includes a affirmation from the church of your call. He says that that's a good thing. That's a beautiful thing. It's a noble thing to aspire to, but it's something that we need to take seriously in the church. I love the way that Pastor Kent Hughes says it. He says, church leadership is not a political position to be sought for oneself. It is a burden that some must accept. Leaders are not determined by popularity. They must be the kind of men profiled here by Paul to Timothy. And the church must recognize who they are. We must see leadership as a calling. We must determine to prepare and equip such leaders. As a church leader, I read this and it's humbling to me, but this is true that we need to know. So first off then, that's the introduction to this elder conversation. So let's talk first off about what elders slash pastors slash overseers, what do they do? Well, in 1 Timothy, Paul isn't necessarily addressing that. In his context, he's mainly addressing the character traits of a good elder. So I think it's helpful for a second just to look at one other passage 
that I think gives us some good context and background for what's going on here. So if you want to, you can flip over to Acts chapter 20. Uh, I'll, I'll read it to you. But in Acts 20, I think it's gonna be on the screen as well. But in Acts 20, Paul is meeting with the elders in the church of Ephesus and he's, he's talking to them about some of the challenges they're gonna face. But he gives a great description of, I think, what elders are called to do in this text. So I'm gonna read verses 28 through 31 of Acts 20. This is what Paul says to the Ephesian elders. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert Remembering that for three years, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So looking at Paul's words, I think you can boil down the job description of an elder to four things. These actually come from a book called The Shepherd Leader by a guy named Timothy Whitmer. It's really helpful. He says that an elder's job is four things. It's to know, lead, feed, and protect the flock that God has called them to. To know, lead, feed, and protect. Protect, But before we get to that, we've got to remember first off that every leader in the church, every elder in the church, every pastor is really an under-shepherd of Christ. That they are a shepherd under the capital S shepherd, the chief shepherd of Jesus Christ. That every Christian, no matter their role in the church, is called to submit to the leadership of Jesus. That he's the one that's in charge in the church. That elders come under the leadership of Christ to serve the church as servant leaders. And elders, like Paul says in Acts 20, they're called to not only watch over the church, but watch over themselves to also make sure that they are submitting to Christ and following his leadership. So then those four things we see. First off, an elder should know their sheep. Seems obvious, but an elder, a pastor, has to spend time with their people, not just preach at them on a Sunday. But also this makes a great point that in the church, this is why we have church membership. That if the church is you know, a, a flock and if pastors are called to shepherd their sheep, to know the flock, well, how can they know who they're supposed to shepherd if they don't know who's in the flock, right? They don't, if we don't have some kind of boundaries or parameters for who's in and who's out. That's why we have church membership to know who's in and who's out. So first, elders know their sheep. Secondly, elders lead their sheep. But this leadership isn't like the CEO of the church. Sadly, that's come into the church a lot to where the pastor's like the CEO or the lead marketing strategist or something like that. But no, a pastor is not called to be the CEO, but to be a servant leader of the church. And as that servant leader, the pastor just doesn't give instructions of what to do, but really good leadership is something that empowers people to use their gifts to serve in ministry, to serve in the church. And it's also to set an example, as we'll talk about in a moment, of servant leadership. I love the way Paul says it in Ephesians 4.12. He says that the church gave pastors so that they could equip the saints for the work of ministry. So it's not the job of a pastor or of an elder to do all the ministry themselves and everybody else kind of watches and maybe foots the bill. <laughs> no, but they're supposed to lead as an example in serving in leadership and in ministry and they're invited to, or they wanna invite everyone else to come along. They invite the church along in their example. So they lead in that way. So they, they know they lead, they also feed this has to do with the incredibly important job a pastor has, an elder has, of feeding the church God's word, the real food that we need. And obviously that happens on a Sunday morning like right now, but also it happens as a pastor seeks to build the whole foundation of a church on the foundation of God's word. And really that means that every good Christian in a healthy church should be equipped to be a self-feeder in many ways too. 
that yes, a pastor has the job to feed the sheep, but ultimately, one sermon on a Sunday morning isn't gonna be enough for you spiritually throughout the week. That we need God's word to be ingrained in us. We need to learn to be self-feeders to where we can know on our own how to know, love, and obey the Bible. And so a good pastor is gonna seek to do that in their flock. Fourthly, an elder also protects the sheep. And we see this clearly in Acts 20, right, where Paul warns the elders that these fierce wolves are gonna come into the church and they need to be alert and keep watch over themselves and also watch over the flock. So it's a job of a pastor to protect the church from false doctrine, to protect them from those that would seek to abuse or to hurt the church, and really to protect the church from any person or doctrine that would divide or divert the church from their mission. The pastors protect the church in that way. So a good elder then in the church, they know, lead, feed, and protect the flock that God has given them, that he has put them as an under-shepherd of Christ. So that's what they do. So now let's look at what they're like. It's what we see in 1 Timothy 3. Now we can look at these qualifications. So read with me, 1 Timothy 3, verses two through seven. Paul says, therefore an overseer, remember this is the same thing as pastor or elder, all similar words mean the same thing. Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and to the snare or the trap of the devil. Now, before we talk about what's on this list, I first wanna point out what's not on this list. Uh, first off, notice Paul says nothing about age that older men are not automatically qualified to be an elder and younger men are not automatically disqualified from being an elder. Secondly, he says nothing about career success, that success in the business world does not automatically qualify you to be a leader in the church. Thirdly, he says nothing about popularity, that leadership in the church is not a popularity contest. But also we have to notice that Paul reserves the role of elder slash pastor for qualified men, not women. And Jared spent plenty of time talking about this last week with roles of men and women in the church. But for us today, it's important to remember that just because this office is reserved for qualified men, I say qualified men, importantly, it doesn't mean that men are superior to women in the church in any way. That both men and women have incredibly important roles to play in the church. And if you notice, Paul connects leadership in the church to leadership in the home. That if the church is like the household of God, like Paul will say in, in uh, chapter three, verse 15, if the church is the household of God and men have the responsibility to lead in their home, then men also have the responsibility to lead as pastors in the church because it's the household of God. But this role is for qualified men that Paul lists out. It doesn't mean it's just for any man and, and being a man in no way gives you some kind of authority over women in the church just because you're a man. It doesn't work that way. This is for qualified men. Now, when it comes to these qualifications, it's important to realize that nearly everything on this list is what every Christian's called to. It's not like there's some kind of extra things necessarily besides the, um, the call to teach and ability to teach, but everything else on here is something that's expected of every Christian. So really what that means is that leaders are to set the example in the church. They're supposed to be a model for the church to follow. And that doesn't mean they're perfect. I read this list and think I have a lot of ways to improve. But it doesn't mean they're perfect. But the question we have to ask is, is incredibly important. It's this. 
what will happen if the church imitates this leader? What will happen if the church imitates this person? Will that lead the church into a healthy, good place to live on mission or will it hinder the church? That's really what Paul's doing here. And if the answer to that question makes us nervous, then that probably means that person you're thinking about isn't qualified to be a leader in the church. So if you take all this stuff mentioned here in 1 Timothy, I think you can really group qualifications for elders into four categories. I'm not gonna walk through every bit of that text and and unpack it all, we've spent a long time doing that, but I think we can group this, also combine it with things from Titus 1 and 1 1 Peter 5 into four categories for qualifications for elders. And I'll give some questions for each one just for you to consider the kind of picture that Paul is painting. In their personal life, here's some questions. Is he self-controlled? Is he wise? Is he peaceable? Is he gentle, not quarrelsome? Does he give sacrificially? Is he humble? Is he patient? Is he honest? And is he disciplined? That's in his personal life. In his family life, is he the spiritual leader of his house? If he's single, because he didn't have to be be married, that's just a a description Paul gives, doesn't mean they have to be married, but if he's single, is he self-controlled in his singleness? But if he's married, is he completely committed to his wife? That idea, husband of one wife, really is the phrase, a one-woman man, which really Paul is saying he needs to be an example in his marriage. He needs to be committed to his wife. He needs to be a husband and a father worth imitating to the church. If he has kids, do those kids honor him? In his social life, is he kind? Is he hospitable? Is he a friend of strangers? Does he show favoritism to people? And does he have a, a blameless reputation? Paul says that they should be above reproach. Doesn't mean that they had to be perfect, right? But does he have a reputation for being an exemplary person? That there's no accusations that could be seriously thrown at this person and stick. And then fourthly, in his spiritual life, is he a disciple maker? Is he leading in that way? Does he love God's word? Is he devoted to prayer? Does he demonstrate a life of holiness? And is he gracious and forgiving? So those are all questions that we should ask of a elder or of a pastor to think, are they qualified? Now, no one in the end is gonna answer or be able to answer all those questions perfectly. I am very challenged as I read those uh, in my own life. But the point is, the kind of man that those questions bring to mind is the kind of man that's qualified to lead in the church. It's a high calling. And it's really, this is an example and a standard that Paul wants to call many men to in the church, to live up to this high calling. So that's how we see what elders are like. But thirdly, let's skip over to chapter five, second half, to look at how the church should treat elders. So let's read in verse 17, because in verse 17 in chapter five, Paul kind of circles around in, in his conversation in chapter five, he circles around to talk about how elders should be treated in the church, and I think it fits well into our conversation today. Verse 17 in chapter five, I'll go to the end of the chapter to verse 25. Paul says, let the elders, yet again, remember elders, overseers, uh, pastors, all the same idea. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourselves pure." 
No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also, good works are conspicuous. That word just means obvious. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Now, real quick, I don't want to get sidetracked by this, but I do want to address Paul's side comment, his parentheses, about Timothy drinking a little wine. Uh, Drinking water at that time, like the water people drank, uh, was not very healthy in many ways. Uh, It was treated, it wasn't treated in the same way that we treat water today. We don't have all the, they didn't have all the fancy technology we we have. So to drink plain water at that time probably led to a lot of sickness. And so oftentimes people would add a little wine to their water as a disinfectant. That we have examples of Roman generals during this time telling their soldiers to drink a little wine to keep uh, dysentery from happening from the Oregon Trail people who don't want to get dysentery. All right. So Paul tells Timothy here then, hey, drink a little medicinal wine for your stomach. Today, he would probably say, hey, drink some Pepto-Bismol. Like you got some stomach problems, take some Pepto-Bismol. The Bible has plenty to say about alcohol. It definitely addresses the issue. This just isn't one of them really. All right, this is more of a medicinal thing. It's not really part of that conversation. Okay, just wanted to address that. So now from these verses, uh, I think we can see five aspects of how the church should treat their elders. Five different things. Again, let's consider them briefly one by one. Uh, The first is this, is that the church should treat elders with appreciation. Number one, appreciation. You notice that phrase, double honor. Kind of a a mysterious phrase, but it probably just means that the church should honor elders that lead well and that preach faithfully. And that honor includes kind of two things. It includes respect, right, and appreciation, but also it includes getting paid, being paid for their hard work. Paul's not saying that pastors should get rich off of ministry. The preachers of sneakers is not the example Paul's talking about here. (laughs) Um, And honestly, at that time, it was rare for pastors to get paid well at all. He's not saying they should get rich off ministry, but he's saying that for those pastors who do get paid by the church, they should be paid fairly. They should be paid appropriately based on their work. He's just making that case. He he literally says that, hey, even an ox gets to eat while it works. Don't treat the pastor worse than an ox, all right? Like, you know, just make sure they get paid fairly, okay, for what they do and and, and the hard work that they do. If they're not working hard, if not being faithful, then maybe they don't deserve it. I don't know, but he's, he's saying if they are working hard, Pay them well. That's his point. Do they deserve appreciation by the church? Secondly, he says the church should treat elders with fairness. Fairness. Uh, Paul says in the verses here, not to listen to unsubstantiated accusations against a a pastor, but instead only listen to it if two or three witnesses agree. And unfortunately, working in ministry, it sometimes means that you do have a target on your back, whether it's justified or not. And so Paul says, don't treat Every accusation is just valid because one person comes to you, but instead, don't jump to conclusions, but listen. Practice discernment. Be fair. Listen to the accusations, but don't listen to things that seem unsubstantiated. Treat elders with fairness. Second thing he says. The third thing he says is the church to treat elders with impartiality. He says for those elders that are exposed in sin, if they're confronted and they don't repent, Paul says don't show favoritism to the ones that maybe you like, but you gotta call them out. Right? Maybe publicly, if necessary, so that the other elders can see what happens if they persist in sin. Make an example in many ways out of them. Don't show impartiality. And then fourthly, the church should appoint elders with caution. That Timothy, in this context, was in charge of appointing new elders at Ephesus. And Paul says, hey, don't rush to any decisions too quickly on who you choose, but do it with prayer. Do it with discernment. He mentions the, the laying on of hands. 
which could be a reference to the practice of ordaining men for ministry. That's something that we do here when we ordain men for the ministry. And that's a practice when historically the church has set apart some men for ministry in the church by laying on hands for, on them. That's the reference there. So don't uh, rush to appointments, but do it with caution. And then fifthly, the church should appoint elders with discernment. Discernment. Paul says that the sins of some are obvious, but some it takes time to see. And, and the same thing with good works. But over time, people have trouble hiding who they really are. And the pressures of ministry, I've come to find, kind of turn you into a sponge. You know, when a sponge is full of water, when you squeeze it, what happens? What's inside comes out, right? The same thing with ministry, that inevitably what's inside you is gonna come out. And so over time, it's gonna show itself. So Paul says, be careful and, and be discerning and take your time in appointing the right people. Don't rush to judgment. So if I could sum all of our conversation about elders up into one way too long sentence, I would do this. I'd say, so elders are servant leaders that know, lead, feed, and protect the church. They are men who exhibit a Christ-like example worth following, and the church should respond to them and treat them with appreciation, fairness, impartiality, and appoint them with caution and discernment. All right, all in a nutshell, all right? So that's elders. Let's move on to deacons. If elders are servant leaders, then I would describe deacons as leading servants, all right, leading servants. Because while the Bible gives us a pretty clear picture of the responsibilities of elders, the job of deacon is not quite as clear. Uh, th- that word deacon literally means to serve. And every Christian is called to deacon in that sense. They're all called to serve. Consider Mark ten forty three that Jesus says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, which is a deacon, must be a deacon. And whoever would be first among you must be slave to all, For even the son of man came not to be served, that is, he came not to be deaconed, but to serve, but to deacon, and to give his life as a ransom for many. But there is a helpful example in the book of Acts that I think shows us the example of a group of people in the church that became these leading servants, that led out in service. That's Acts chapter six. And so if you wanna flip there, you can. It'll be on the screen. But Acts chapter six, verses one through seven, this is a story of the early church organizing to meet needs. It says this. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution, that is, of food. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, I probably butchered those, but a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And look at the result of this. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Jacob Reed won't want me to warn the deacons that Stephen actually became the first martyr in the church, so take the role of deacon lightly, or seriously with that. Um, He likes to mention that a lot. But I think this story here is an example of, a great example of the early church organizing itself to meet specific needs in the church. It does occur in a specific context. We have these Greek widows in the church that were apparently being neglected by the Hebrew members of the church when it came to distribution of food. 
But instead of getting caught up in all the administration that will be involved in addressing this issue, the apostles say, hey, we're not gonna deal with that issue that would take up all of our time. We couldn't be focused on the ministry of the word and prayer. So instead they appoint seven men to lead out in this service so that the apostles could focus on their role. Now, this doesn't seem to be an official like creation of the office of deacon because it never comes up again. That title never comes up again in the book of Acts. But it does seem that by the time that Paul writes his letter to Timothy, that the office of deacon has become more of an official role in the church, which is why he addresses it. And so from that story, though, in Acts 6, I do think we can see at least three descriptions of what deacons do. At least three. First, deacons lead in helping meet the needs of the church. They lead out in helping meet the needs of the church. Does it mean that they meet every need? In Acts 6, there were probably thousands of believers at this point. Seven guys could not meet all the needs, right? But instead of meeting all the needs, it does mean that they do lead out in a way. They, they lead the way in serving the church and they help organize the church to, and lead other people to serve the church and meet needs. So they lead out in that way. So second of all, second of all deacons not just help meet needs in the church, they also support the ministry of the word in the church. Because you see in Acts 6, the deacons were appointed so that the apostles could be freed up to the ministry of the word and prayer. So that means that deacons are called to assist elders so that elders can lead in the way they're called to lead the church, that they work together. And then thirdly, deacons help create unity in the church as they serve. Because if you notice in Acts 6, unity in the church was at risk. You had the Greeks and the Hebrews that were kind of at each other's throat a little bit. People were being neglected and the deacons step up to take care of that need, right? In a way, this means that deacons are like shock absorbers in the church in many ways, that they address needs and they help calm down the drama so that the mission of the church can move forward and the church can stay unified. So this means that deacons play an incredibly pivotal role in the church as leading servants. And I'm really proud of our deacons and how they've stepped up, especially in this time of transition, to make sure the needs of our people are met and people feel, feel cared for. I'm, I'm very proud of them. But that's kind of what deacons do. Let's go back to 1 Timothy now to look at what deacons are supposed to be like. Back to chapter three, let's go back to verse eight. Paul gives a similar description of deacons that have some similarities to the description of elders in terms of character quality. Starting in verse eight, Paul says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanders, not sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So just like with the list of elders, I think it's more helpful to see this list as more of a character picture, more than just check boxes that a deacon has to fulfill. Because the picture is essentially the same as an elder in character, just without the ability to teach and the requirement to teach being in there. So deacons like elders then are to be Christ-like examples in the church worth following. The same question is if the church follows this person, imitates them, what will happen? Will it be a good thing? So for deacons, I won't list as many questions, but you could ask questions like this. You know, are they honorable? Are they genuine? Are they a sacrificial giver? Are they devoted to the Bible? Are they devoted to, as Paul would say, the mystery of the faith, to sound doctrine? 
Have they shown themselves to be faithful? Have they been proven over time? And do they honor Christ in their home? Do, do they provide a Christ-like example? We can ask a lot more questions, but I think we get the idea. It's similar to the other list. But if, if I can add one more that's not here in First Timothy, but we see it in Acts, I'd say deacons also should have a mission mindset. A mission mindset. Because if you see in, in, in Acts 6, the deacons serve the church so that the church's mission should continue and could continue. So I think it means that deacons should have a desire to see the church thrive in its mission to make disciples. And they should wanna get everyone they can on board that mission. We see that, I think, clearly in verse 13 of 1 Timothy 3, where Paul says, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I think Paul's talking about more than just deacons being respected in the church, although that's definitely part of it. But I think even that good standing Paul's talking about likely also has to do with those outside the church. That a deacon's good reputation should allow him influence outside the church in sharing the gospel and demonstrating the gospel. And his service in the church should equip the church to do the same. And then when it talks about great confidence, I think it's the similar idea that the way a deacon serves should give people in the church and outside the church great confidence in the truth of the gospel, which should lead the church to thrive even more in its mission. That they're not just simply meeting needs to meet needs for the sake of that, but they are furthering the mission of the church in the way that they serve, in the way that they are leading servants. So if we could summarize all of that, I say that deacons are leading servants in the church that exhibit a Christ-like example to the church as they seek to serve, support, and unify the church. That's those in a nutshell. Now let's move on to our last part of the text for today and we'll begin to wrap up because let's, let's lastly talk about the church as servants of the truth of Christ. This is in verses 14 through 16 of chapter three because Paul ends his discussion about leadership by reminding the church, or sorry, by reminding Timothy who the church is, and by reminding Timothy what the church is about, because the nature of the church determines the church's leadership. The nature of the church determines the church's leadership. So let's read 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 16. Paul says this, says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. This is then a hymn of Christ here. It says, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So Paul describes first who the church is in three really beautiful ways. He says that we're the household of God. And a household will only be healthy if it has healthy leadership. So leaders in the church need to lead in a way that builds up the family, not divides the family, not breaks down the family. But not only are we the household of God, we're the church of the living God. And this living God is still active and on the move, calling people to lead in his church so that the church can fulfill its mission. So we have a job even as the church to help affirm those who feel a call to leadership that God is still living and active and at work calling people. We wanna be a part of affirming people in that way, helping them discern that. And then thirdly, the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. It's a pillar of the truth, which, you know, which means that when the church lives according to what it proclaims to believe, it doesn't make the truth. The truth is there no matter what, but it does make the truth of the gospel look good and compelling. That we're a pillar of the truth in the way that we support the truth, not that we create it, but that we give evidence that it's good and true. 
that the gospel is good and true. But the inverse of that is if the church has poor leadership, then the church will suffer. And the church that's meant to make the truth of the gospel look good will instead make the church look like it's just another drama-filled country club, right? And so that's why, it's poor, that's why good church leadership is so important and so central to the nature of the church. So first Paul describes who the church is, and then lastly there in verse 16, we see what the church is about. And I love this because in many ways, Paul essentially lays out the gospel in a hymn. One of the commentaries I read this week said that this is probably one of the, the early missionary hymns of the New Testament, talking about Jesus and what he's done. And let me just kind of, you kind of rephrase it a little bit to help you see what it, what's happening here. They're saying that Jesus was incarnated in the flesh, that through his spirit-empowered resurrection, he was shown to be God, that he ascended to heaven to the right hand of the Father, and that his gospel is to be proclaimed to the nations, to be believed in the world, and to be lifted up as the eternally good news that it is. So you can see the gospel story of Jesus coming to earth, dying, being resurrected, being lifted up to be proclaimed. We see that in this beautiful hymn. And honestly, isn't that what the church is supposed to be about? That we're supposed to be about lifting up the incarnate, resurrected, ascended son of God in a world that desperately needs him, that is dying and going to hell without him. So this means that leadership in the church is, is so much more of an issue than just making our churches more comfortable, more fun, you know, more enjoyable spaces. It's so much more than that. But leadership in the church is an eternal issue. It's a matter of life and death. That if poor leadership cripples churches, then it cripples the mission of the church to get the gospel to people dying without Christ. So our call today as we finish is that let's view church leadership seriously. As a church, let's pray for our leaders. Let's pray for our search committee as they are in the process of discerning our next leader here at the church, senior pastor. And let's fulfill our role in the church, our mission we have, not just for the sake of the church being a fun place to be, a comfortable place to be, an enjoyable place to be, but ultimately for the sake of the world for the salvation of the world, because that's what we're called to. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Lord, as a leader, as a, as a pastor, I come to these verses today and I really kind of come with trembling because it's such a high calling. that the, the task is momentous and that me on my own, any human person, any, any man could never aspire to these things on our own, but that we're broken, that we're sinful. But it's only through your spirit it's only by your grace that you can create these kind of people. It's only by your grace that you can create this kind of church that would be able to lead out in this mission. So Father, we ask for your wisdom in this church that we will be a church that, um, that honors its leaders, honors its elders, honors its deacons, that we'd be a church that celebrates good leadership, that we'd be a church that wants to hold our leadership accountable for the health, not just of them, for the health of the church. And I pray that we'd be a church that is praying as we're in this transition process of bringing in a new senior pastor. I pray that we would all be serious about bringing that to you in prayer consistently, daily, asking for you to lead the committee and humbly submitting to your guidance, submitting to the person that you would bring here to lead us. But Lord, we know ultimately that the real leader of this church is Christ. And he's given us a mission to go and make disciples of all nations. So I pray that all of us would take up that call, that every Christian in this room, as they look at this text today, would not just see a list of character qualities for the pastor, but they'd see a example for them to aspire to, a calling for them to imitate in Christ, but also they would see the mission of Christ in the way that leaders are supposed to lead the church in that mission. So give us a heart to fulfill that mission. Give us a burden for the things that break your heart. 
Do great things in and through us for your glory. Pray in Christ's name, amen.